Our, <clears throat> our Savior used a number of different forums, a number of different pulpits, if you will, from which to instruct the people during his earthly ministry. For example, during his Galilean ministry, he often taught from the crowded streets and the cramped quarters in cities such as Capernaum. When the crowds became too large and too unwieldy, he would often go down to the Sea of Galilee where his disciples kept a boat ready for him at all times. He would step off out into the boat and he would either stand or sit in the boat while the multitudes gathered on the seashore and he would instruct them from the boat. <clears throat> One time, uh, very probably his uh, best known sermon was preached from the side of a mountain. And this is recorded in Matthew chapters five through seven. You'll remember that when he was in Samaria that he taught uh, the woman by Jacob's well. In Jerusalem, in the temple area, he usually taught from a gate uh, near a gate, which was called Beautiful. But the last sermon that he preached was preached from the pulpit of a cross. And I'm convinced that there was never a pulpit like the cross. I'm convinced there was never a crowd assembled uh, exactly like the one that was at Calvary. And I know that there has never been another preacher like our dying Savior. And so tonight, for just a little while, I want to notice with you the final statements made by our Savior as he was dying upon Calvary's cross. The first one is found in Luke 23, verse 34, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's my understanding that when someone knows that they are near death, that usually they want to speak to somebody who's near and dear to their heart. And uh, therefore, it is significant to me that the very first group or category that Jesus mentions as he's dying upon Calvary's cross are his enemies. Now, this is in the form of a prayer. It's addressed to the Father. But nevertheless, it, is, uh, it concerns his enemies. You know, historically, those who were crucified upon Roman crosses uh, had something to say. And I'm convinced that those people who gathered there on that occasion uh, expected to hear Jesus say something. According to historians, however, what uh, people had to say for the most part was uh, usually something that they would prefer not to hear. In, uh, by that I mean uh, it was not uncommon, for example, if someone had been crucified upon a Roman cross for the victim to curse, uh, to curse uh, those who had uh, crucified him, uh, to curse his, uh, those standing around gawking at him. Uh, to curse his mother, to curse his father, uh, to curse the very day that he was born. In fact, sometimes their language became so vile that in an effort to silence them, the executioner would cut out the tongue. So those who gathered on that occasion expected Jesus to say something. And I'm convinced that there were those there who probably thought to themselves, well, you know, during his brief period of popularity, he said things like, love your enemies and do good to them that hate you and bless them that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. I said, if a man smite thee upon one cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If uh, someone compel you to go a mile, be, with him to go, be willing to go with him too. Or if someone uh, take your coat, give him your cloak also. Now he said all that during his brief period of popularity, but don't you know it's gonna be a different story today? Don't you know he's going to vent his spleen today and there's going to be something vile come out of his mouth? And yet when Jesus spoke, he spoke words of mercy. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive whom? The Jews who clamored for his blood? Pilate who denied him justice for popularity? 
Herod Antipas who ridiculed him and treated him like a buffoon, those who smote him before uh, Caiaphas, uh, the, the uh, guards of the temple, uh, the soldiers who beat him in the common hall, those who actually nailed him to the cross, forgive all of them. Why? He said, because they know not what they do. Now, in view of that, I wonder, is it possible that had they known precisely what they were doing, that there would have been no opportunity for forgiveness? Peter said in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Have you ever wondered why the angels were not given an opportunity to repent? Could it be because they knew precisely what they were doing? that they were planning high treason and conspiracy against God, that they intended to remove the Lord from his throne and take control of the universe. And because they knew precisely what they were doing, they were given no opportunity for forgiveness. Well, if that's, if that's the case, then it's possible that had these Jews known that they were putting to death the Messiah, there would have been no opportunity for forgiveness for them. Well, when, when was this prayer of our Savior answered? Now, it wasn't answered while he was still upon Calvary's cross. It was not answered uh, the time that he was actually in the tomb. It wasn't answered during that 40-day interval between the time of his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, nor was it during that 10-day interval between the time of his ascension and of the day of Pentecost. But if you look at Acts, the second chapter, you'll find that it was at the day of Pentecost itself. Notice uh, in verse, beginning at verse 22, here Luke records the words of the apostle Peter. Peter was addressing a multitude of thousands of people who had gathered for Pentecost, one of the three great uh, annual festivals among the Jews. And he told them, he said, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. But some of the very uh, same uh, the people that Peter is addressing on this occasion stood before Pilate. When Pilate brought Jesus out on the balcony of his praetorium and asked the multitudes, What then shall I do with Jesus? Some of these very same people, uh, no doubt, undoubtedly were there. And they cried out and said, let him be crucified. Let his blood be upon our heads and upon the heads of our children. But now, after having listened to the words of Peter, Peter reminded them that Jesus was the fulfillment of their own messianic prophecies. That Jesus was a worker of miracles that they had witnessed with their own eyes. And being reminded of that, and at the same time witnessing a, a miraculous manifestation that was uh, incomparable at that very moment, the fact that there were people there from all over the world and everybody was listening to the apostles, heard them speak in their own native language. They were overwhelmed by it, and it was almost as though a, a, like a bolt of lightning they suddenly realized the heinous crime that they had committed. They could see that they had put to death the Messiah whom their people had longed for for over a thousand years. They were crushed. 
They were terrified. And they cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responded according to Acts 2 and verse 38 and said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That is one of the most powerful passages in the entirety of the Word of God. And I know that we, we read that so often and we quote that so often that sometimes, you know, we sort of think it's trite. But I'm going to tell you uh, this afternoon, <clears throat> in my experience, I've never seen anybody become so distraught over the sudden realization of their guilt that they couldn't even wait for the preacher to finish his sermon. But that's what happened here. These people were so overcome by the sudden realization of the horrible crime that they had committed, they didn't even wait for Peter to finish his sermon. They said, wait a minute, what are we going to do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And friends, uh, the Bible tells us that that very day there were some 3,000 that gladly received his word and were baptized. And that's when the prayer of Jesus was answered. Some 50 days before, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. On this occasion, 3,000 people surrendered their wills to the will of Christ and were baptized, and that's when they obtained their forgiveness. Now, what's uh, important about that for you and me tonight is that we had a part in the crucifixion too. The Bible tells us that we are responsible for the death of our Savior because he died for our sins. The man who actually drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet was a sinner. Romans 3 and 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus died for that man, and Jesus died for you and for me. Now, that man had to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven of the sin of putting to death the Messiah. Then you and I must repent and be baptized for the very same reason. The second statement is found in Luke 23 and verse 43. Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. While the Savior hung upon the cross, he continued to be abused by those who gathered. <clears throat> there were those who gathered there that mocked him. They said, If you be the Son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? Why, you said you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you be the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? Now, the, the chief priests, they didn't address Jesus directly, but they talked among themselves, and they said, well, you know, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. The thieves began to rail upon him as well, but one of them had a change of heart, according to Luke 23 and verse 41, and he said to the other, you and I suffer justly for the deeds that we've done, but this man hath done no wrong. And then he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I wouldn't have been surprised if uh, Lazarus, whom Jesus had just raised from the dead over in Bethany not long prior to this, had made that statement. I wouldn't have been surprised if uh, the widow of Nain, whose son Jesus raised from the dead back to life, in fact stopped the funeral procession and raised him back to life, had made this statement. I wouldn't have been surprised if Bartimaeus, had made this statement or if Peter had made this statement but it is a little surprising to me that the only one that had the intestinal fortitude to speak up on that occasion was one of the thieves now as the end drew near for Jesus his silence deepened 
You'll recall <clears throat> when he was first taken to Pilate. As long as Pilate was honestly deliberating on what to do with him, Jesus answered his questions. But when it became obvious to him that he had made up his mind what he was going to do, and he was not going to do the just thing, but rather he was going to do the politically expedient thing, Jesus refused to answer him another word. In fact, Pilate marveled. He said, the man's on trial for his life, and he won't say a word. He was hustled off to Herod Antipas. Now, Herod was, <clears throat> he was the tetrarch of Galilee, and really, technically, he had jurisdiction over Jesus because Jesus was from Galilee. And so uh, Pilate could see that uh, really there was uh, nothing that he had done that had violated Roman law, but it wasn't going to be politically expedient for him to let Jesus go. So he thought, hey, I'll, I'll send him over to Antipas and let him deal with him. Well, Antipas, he was anxious to see him. He'd heard about him. But when Jesus got there and could see that all Antipas was interested in was just in having Jesus do some magic tricks for him and entertain him, he didn't answer him a word. They took him into the common hall, the Roman cohort, and the cohort was over 600 soldiers. And they absolutely beat him to a pulp. Now these Roman soldiers, you know the Bible talks about the centurions. Usually the centurion was a man of good character. And there are a number of centurions that are mentioned in the book of Acts, for example, that were, they, they were good men. But the rank and file Roman soldier was nothing more than a mercenary. He was a hired killer. And uh, he was loyal to nobody but Caesar. As far as he was concerned, Caesar was not only king, but Caesar was God. And uh, here was a peasant from Galilee who, according to his own people, was claiming to usurp the authority of Caesar. As far as they were concerned, it was hilarious. And they took him into the common hall and made a buffoon out of him. They uh, gave him a royal garb, put a purple coat around his shoulders in mockery of the royalty that Caesar would wear. They gave him a crown, but it was made of thorns. And uh, in place of the highly jeweled scepter that Caesar would hold as he sat upon the throne, they gave him a reed. And then they uh, walked up to him and in mockery, as they would have done to Caesar, they bowed down to him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And then arising, instead of kissing him, they spit on him. They slapped him. They beat him over the head with the reed. And all of that narrative is in the present tense, which indicates that this is something that they did over and over and over again. And yet, he answered them not one word in response. When they nailed him to the cross, not a word. Resolutely silent. But when this thief, addresses him. Jesus breaks his silence and he responds and he says, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. I know this statement by our Savior has been, uh, it's been something that's been discussed for a number of years as to whether uh, the, the thief was going to be saved or not. I'll just tell you frankly this afternoon, I believe that he was. The word paradise is a Persian word. It means a, a beautiful garden. And I really don't see that it would have much meaning uh, if Jesus was telling him, today you and I are going to be buried in the garden cemetery. I don't think that's what he was talking about. The word paradise is the very same word that's found in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. You remember when Paul said, I knew a man whether he was in the body or out of the body. I don't know, but, uh, I was, but he was called up to the third heaven into paradise. 
So it seems obvious to me that Jesus was saying that this man was going to be in a saved condition. Well, now, in view of that, a lot of times people will ask the question, can I be saved like that? And usually what they have in mind is, can I be saved without being baptized? Did you know, however, that it's entirely possible that this thief had been baptized? Notice in Mark, uh, Matthew 3, beginning at verse 5, Matthew says about John, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Well, the thief was crucified near Jerusalem, so it could be that he was one of those who had been baptized by John. Really, that's beside the point, though. The point is found in Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. There the writer says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. You know full well this evening that... Uh, as long as you're alive, that you can distribute your uh, estate any way that you decide. But when you die, your estate must be distributed according to the conditions of your will. And friends, so it is with the last will and testament of our Lord. Now, while Jesus lived and walked here upon this earth, he freely forgave men and women of their sins. He spoke their sins away. But with his death, now salvation uh, now forgiveness must be obtained only according to the conditions of his will. The conditions of that will are made very clear. Uh, just as he uh, got ready to ascend back to heaven, he told his disciples to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Peter, preaching the first gospel sermon after receiving this commission, said in Acts 2 and verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You know, it's, uh, what is it? today's the 11th, isn't it? I, I think about this a lot, you know, around April 15th. Did you know George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln paid no income taxes? Did you know that? Now, I suppose I got to thinking about that this week as the 15th rolls around. And I sat down and I wrote the IRS letter and I said, now look, Washington, the father of our country, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, paid no income taxes. I'm not paying any taxes either. You think I'd get by with that? Well, not in your life. And that's because they live prior to the enactment of the income tax law. In view of the fact, though, that I live since that law was enacted, I'm going to pay my fair share. Now, if you can understand that, you can understand about the thief on the cross. He lived and he obtained his pardon prior to the death of Jesus and consequently before the New Testament was a force. And so uh, our question tonight shouldn't be, can I be saved like he was saved? But rather, in view of the fact that we live under a New Testament, what must I do to be saved? And in answer to that, Jesus said in Mark 16 and 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The third statement that he made is recorded in John 19, verses 26 and 27, when he said, Behold thy son. Now this was spoken to his mother, Mary. And uh, very probably it was about noon. I've got a hunch that the crowd had begun to dwindle somewhat. 
the soldiers would still be there, probably sweltering under the new day, noonday's sun. Uh, the centurion obviously would be there because he would be in charge of the proceedings. The women were there, including Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, the disciple whom he loved. When Jesus died upon the cross, he died as Mary's Savior as well as her son. You know, I've got a hunch, though, that as Mary stood there and watched him writhing in such agony that uh, she was probably thinking about the fact that this was her son to whom she had given birth. And no doubt there were a number of things that raced through her mind. She probably recalled his birth in Bethlehem. Could very well have recalled their flight to Egypt to evade the, the murder attempts of Herod, uh, King Herod. Probably thought about his uh, precocious childhood. She probably uh, uh, remembered his brief period of popularity. No doubt she remembered the words of Simeon who told her that one day uh, her heart was going to be pierced because of him. And her heart was being pierced because of him this very moment. But she couldn't uh, dampen a cloth and soothe his parched brow. She couldn't... Uh, Take a cup of water and soothe his parched lips. All she could do was stand there and watch him die. Well, as she observed him lovingly, he addressed her and he said, Behold thy son. Now, he wasn't talking about himself. He wasn't saying, Look at me, here I am, I'm your son. And I, No, he was referring to John. And he was telling his mother from this day forward, I want you to consider John as though he's your son. And then he said to John, Behold thy mother. In other words, he said from this day forward, I want you to consider Mary as though she is your own mother. And did you know the Bible says that from that day forward that Mary lived in the house of John? Now that's, uh, that's curious to me because Mary had other sons and daughters. Why didn't Jesus consign the care of his mother to one of his brothers or sisters? I'll tell you why. Because according to John, the seventh chapter, none of his own brothers or, and sisters believed in him at the time as the Messiah. And none of them did believe in him until after the resurrection. John did. And because John was a believer, he wanted his mother to live with John. And he was <clears throat> simply teaching right here the superiority of the spiritual relationship over the biological relationship. Now he had really taught that earlier in, in, uh, when he was still in uh, Galilee, according to Mark, the third chapter. Mark tells us, and really Mark's the only one who says anything about this, but word filtered to his mother and his brothers and sisters back in Nazareth when Jesus was up in Capernaum that he wasn't eating and that he wasn't sleeping and that he was beside himself. And when they got word of that, they made a trip from Nazareth up to Capernaum to get him and to take him back home where they could take care of him by force if necessary. When they got to Capernaum, however, they found him, he was in a house, he was, he was teaching a multitude of people, and the crowd was so thick that they couldn't penetrate it, they couldn't get inside. And so they just sent word through the crowd, tell the, tell the master that his mother and his brothers and his sisters are outside and they'd like to see him. 
Remember what Jesus' response was. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers and my sisters? They that do the will of my Father who is in heaven. The same as my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. Again, the superiority of the spiritual relationship. Obviously, the reason that the spiritual relationship is superior is because at best, the biological relationship is only temporary. Spiritual relationship is eternal. You know, my wife, uh, Phyllis, and many of you know Phyllis, we have two sons. You know, they're, uh, they're 28 and 25 at this point. I know I don't look old enough, but, uh, but they are. It, it, it really is the truth. You know, it seems to me like it was just yesterday that they were just little toddlers. But uh, I remember Phyllis and I used to talk about what kind of preparation that we ought to make to ensure that they were cared for in the event of some untimely demise. On, you know, and, and it was, it's possible we thought about that. And, and we, we decided that if it came down to it, I don't think it would have come down to it, but if it had come down to it, we preferred that they be reared by faithful Christians who were not kinfolks than to have them reared by kinfolks who weren't Christians. Because, you see, the spiritual relationship is eternal. Well, the fourth statement is found in, in Matthew 27 and verse 46. Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This really is actually a quote from Psalm 22 and verse 1. And again, this is a statement by the Savior that's been discussed for centuries as to exactly what he meant. I've always sort of felt like the, the simplest explanation is probably most nearly correct and I believe that Jesus made this, this pitiful cry of dereliction because he truly felt forsaken. He had already been forsaken by the religious leaders of his own people. He had been forsaken by his family. He had been forsaken by his friends. But on those occasions, he assured himself by the knowledge that God was present. He said, the hour is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. But now, in some sense, that really is beyond our ability to fully fathom, the Father has been separated from him as well. You know, you can be in a, a dark room and uh, go out into the darkness of the night, and uh, really the darkness doesn't seem all that dark because there's not a, a great contrast. But you can be in a brilliantly lit room and go out into the darkness of the night, and the darkness seems all the darker because of the tremendous contrast. By the same token, I'm convinced that nobody misses the presence of God more than the one who has been so keenly aware of his presence through the years. And God had always been very real to Jesus. He was closer than breathing and nearer than hands and feet, but now, in some way, as I said, beyond our ability to fully fathom, he's been separated from him. And this was such a contrast to what Jesus had ever known. You know what, though? You and I can gain a great deal of, of comfort and reassurance in this pitiful cry of our Savior. The reassurance that I glean from that is that uh, this was not just an act. The Lord was not just an actor fulfilling a role. But what this tells me is that he truly took upon himself the punishment of the damned. He took our hell 
And hell is a separation from God. And therefore, for that reason, when we obey the gospel, and if we abide in him, then the punishment that we deserve because of our past sins has already been fulfilled by Jesus upon the cross. And now according to Romans, the third chapter, God can be just, and he can be the justifier of all of those who submit to him. The fifth statement is found in John 19 and verse 28 when Jesus said, I thirst. Now, the, the Savior was both uh, human and divine, and uh, you know, that's what he was talking about in Matthew, the 22nd chapter. You'll recall that very probably on about a Tuesday of the week that he was crucified, he was in Jerusalem, and what is often called the day of questions. He was uh, approached by the Pharisees and then the Sadducees. They decided that probably the best way to take him would be to entrap him or ensnare him with his own speech. And so they devised questions that seemingly were impossible for him to, to answer. They asked him if it was lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, and which was the greatest commandment. And he fielded those so easily and answered them so simply and yet so profoundly that, that they, were, they were stunned, they were silenced. The Sadducees asked him about the resurrection, same thing. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 25 that Jesus seized upon their lull in questioning him, uh, and he asked them a question. He said, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now when he asked them that, it wasn't with the assumption that they believed him to be the Christ because he knew they didn't believe he was the Christ. And therefore, he was talking about himself sort of in the third person. It was like he was saying, you know, the Christ, the Messiah, you know, that, that the prophets speak about? Yes. Well, what do you think of him? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus said, if that's the case, how is it that David called his son Lord? Well, they couldn't answer that. They were bewildered. And the Bible said they didn't ask him any more questions. What he was talking about was the fact that uh, he is divine. He was a part of the Godhead. He is without beginning. And therefore, David, when he lived, he addressed him as Lord. And yet when he was incarnated and born into this world as a human being, he was born into the lineage of David. So he was both divine and human. Well, as a divine being, he could have told those who assembled there on that occasion, in the beginning was God, and I was with God, and I am God the Word. Not a thing was made in the beginning that was not created by me. I threw the planets into their orbits. I placed the stars in their position. The earth was like a trinket on my wrist. But he didn't. He said, I'm thirsty. About three years ago, I was out here in a meeting at Sanger, I believe it was. One day, I was looking around at an old, dusty, used bookstore. It's about the only hobby I have anymore. I quit golf about 10 years ago, and my life has been a lot less stressful. And uh, I don't, my, my knees won't let me play basketball anymore. So about the only hobby I have anymore is just uh, looking around for uh, diamonds in the rough, you know, some of these old, used bookstores. And I found a book. And it was entitled, Jesus and Socrates, or Christ and Socrates. It, it, anyhow, you know, that's just pretty close. And I looked at it, I was intrigued by it, and I scanned it quickly. And I started to buy it, and then I got to arguing with myself. I didn't buy it. I wish later I had. I do that so often. But anyhow, 
You know, best I could tell, I scanned it. There was a beautiful description of the crucifixion. And uh, it talked about Socrates. You know Socrates, he lived, what, four or five hundred years before Christ. And he lived in Athens. And he was the great Greek scholar who was accused of introducing new gods to the Greeks. And therefore, he was given the cup of hemlock. And he drank the cup of hemlock and died. And this man was uh, comparing the death of Socrates to the death of Christ. And in the final analysis, he said that Socrates died as a philosopher, but that Jesus died as God. Now, I beg to dif differ with that tonight. God cannot die. Jesus died as a man. In Philippians, the second chapter, the Bible says at about verse 5, that he was equal to God. He didn't consider his equality with God as something to be selfishly held on to, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of the form of God, came into this world, and became one of us, and abased himself to the role of a servant, took our sin upon himself, and died in order that we might have atonement. Jesus knew what it was like to be thirsty, he knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be afraid, uh, to be angry. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in all fashion, like as we were, yet without sin. For that reason, as he is at the right hand of God, as our advocate, as our intercessor, he understands. And he's anxious to intercede on our behalf. The sixth statement, John 19 and verse 30, it is finished. The scheme of redemption was completed. The old covenant with its ceremony, animal sacrifices, and human priesthood was finished. The purchase price for the church had been paid. Uh, the battle had been fought and had been won. Uh, he had entered into the strong man's house and spoiled his goods. Uh, he had destroyed the power of Satan through his death. The battle was over. It is finished. And then finally, the seventh statement, <clears throat> Psalm 31, into thy hands, or rather it, it, in uh, Luke 23 and verse 46, it's actually a quote from Psalm 31, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Really, it should not surprise us that much of what Jesus had to say is a quotation of Scripture. You can tell a lot about a person what they're passionate about, what's important to them, because it'll come out in their conversation. I know people, for example, who consider themselves fans of Shakespeare. They're all the time quoting the bard. You know, the fact is we all quote Shakespeare. Now, we may not know it, but we do, because he had that kind of an impact on the English language. But I know people that consider themselves big fans of Shakespeare, and they're always saying things like, well, you know, it's like what Macbeth said, or it's like Julius Caesar said. I know some teenagers honestly, that I think could carry on a conversation for 20 or 30 minutes just by quoting dialogue from their favorite TV program. And I'll confess to you this afternoon, I can quote you some Andy Taylor and some Barney Fife myself. But if you're passionate about the Word of God, if uh, this is something that you allow to shape your life and to direct your walk, it'll come out in your conversation. And you'll hear people saying things like, well, it's like the Lord said. Or, well, you know, Solomon said, or, or the Apostle Paul said so and so. It'll come out. And therefore, it shouldn't be surprising to us that much 
of what Jesus had to say was a quotation from Scripture, and this is a quotation from Psalm 31. And it tells us not only how Jesus died, but it tells us a lot about how he lived. I have a, an obituary here before me tonight. It was written by a man by the name of Charles Lamb, and he wrote this about his friend. He said, who parted this life on Wednesday evening, dying as he had lived without much trouble. I think what he says there about his friend probably is true of most all of us will we'll die as we lived. And that tells us a great deal about our Savior. You know, there was a fellow who was uh, re renowned to be one of the greatest uh, artists who ever lived, had to just built a, accumulated a fortune from this wonderful gift he had. But uh, as is uh, so often the case, he became weary of the demands of his celebrity. So just looking for an opportunity to, to take a sabbatical, he, he went into a third world poverty stricken country, went into a small village where a large family just invited him in. Stranger didn't know him from, from Adam. Invited him in, let him come in and live with them. And he lived with them for about three or four weeks, a month or two, I don't remember exactly how long. But, uh, and just sort of revitalized himself. But he said while he was there, he said one of the kids in this family, a little girl, had, had a birthday. And they had a party for her. And he said that all the gifts were just little inexpensive homemade gifts. But he said he was just, he was just overcome with this feeling of love among the family. And you know how, how genuine all this was, even though it was, uh, you know, it, none of it was expensive. And he said that uh, she received a little handheld paper fan. And he said just kind of impulsively, he told her, he says, honey, he said, if you'll let me have that for a little while, he said, I'll paint you something on it really pretty. Well, the little girl, she's innocent. She's little. She said, no. I don't want you to ruin my fan, no. And she wouldn't let him have it. Well, later, after he left, and they found out who he was, they saw that they missed out on a great opportunity. If they had just trusted him to the point of giving him that fan for a little while, he could have painted them something on it that would have been really of an inestimable value. So it is with us. If we'll just trust the Lord to the point of committing our lives to Him, He will give us in return something of incomparable value. And then when we die, we can die as did He after having committed our lives to Him we can commit our souls to him forevermore. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m., and 5 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.